You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Renee DeResta, it is such a pleasure to have you here from Stanford University. Renee is the tech research manager at Stanford's Internet Observatory. She is also a regular contributor to Wired Magazine, and she works on issues of malign narratives and misinformation. Renee, we're really happy to have you here today. My colleague Steve Morrison and close friend and I host this podcast together. And of course, you've worked with Steve on May 6th. You joined Steve and CSIS as part of the Global Health Security Commission event. There's a lot of questions we have, but let's start with this. Why is health misinformation different than any other misinformation? And why does it need to be addressed differently? Yeah, that's a great question. So for health misinformation, we tend to think about it as an area where there's a little bit more in the way of a grounded body of fact. So in political misinformation, a lot of it is a matter of opinion, right? Or it's a interpretation of events. There's some grain of truth in a lot of the political propaganda that, you know, goes viral and becomes sensational, but it's hard to refute it from a purely fact-based standpoint. It's a lot of how it makes people feel. With health misinformation, there's much more of an opportunity to talk about the claims on the merits. So the sort of canonical example is vaccines don't cause autism. Uh, And so if information comes out saying that vaccines cause autism, there's a whole body of, you know, at this point, close to over a decade at this point of of studies showing that that is not the case. Uh, And so there is something something falsifiable about the claim. So it's a little bit easier to address the claims uh, on the merits. The other thing is that health misinformation has kind of a direct impact on people's lives, sometimes in an extremely uh, short time horizon. You know, if you're told to take a bad product like bleach, for example, as a cure, uh, that has kind of an immediate detrimental impact on you as opposed to, you know, political misinformation, where again, there's a sense that debate, dialogue and fact checking over time will kind of correct a misperception. What is it about the coronavirus pandemic that makes it especially attractive opportunity for pseudoscience and government conspiracy theories and malevolent misinformation campaigns? Yeah, well, first of all, it's uh, everyone's paying attention to the same thing uh, or, you know, that's changed a little bit in the U.S. in the last, I would say, week and a half. You know, now we have a focus on George Floyd and and some of the uh, protest movements going on in the U.S. Uh, But prior to that, the entire world was focused almost exclusively on pandemic and how it was playing out. Infection numbers, whether to reopen, some reopen protests, again, uh, that those were also about the pandemic. The sustained attention meant that as people were really searching for more and more information about it, particularly because there was a, a real concern about it impacting lives very directly, you know, were you going to lose friends or family members, were you going to lose your livelihood? There were so many direct personal uh, responses to the situation that that provided an opportunity for those who wanted to provide and, you know, kind of create information to fill the void, so to speak. When you search for something, the, you know, the algorithm can only return what it has at its disposal. So if you're searching for information and no one has created good information, it's going to serve up whatever it does have. And that's been one of the the key challenges um, with any breaking news situation, but with this one in particular. Also because since this was an area of sustained global interest, that meant that we were seeing these things these uh, misleading bits of information popping up globally 
And because of the way information spreads, particularly on global social networks, uh, they do get translated. They do make their way down into other languages. Uh, and there's usually a kind of multi-day lag before the fact check gets translated as well. With the government conspiracy theories part of the question, it's a, particularly for China, very high stakes public relations uh, related issues there. So a lot of times when you see governments revert to conspiracy, what you're seeing is they're using particularly political conspiracies where in the case of China, they're saying that the U.S. manufactured the virus at Fort Detrick uh, and it made its way over through soldiers who, who visited for the World Military Games. Now, this is not something that the official, you know, that, that the president is saying. This is something that the state media is framing in the form of we're just asking questions, but people on the Internet are saying that and then they present the conspiracy theory. And it's a very interesting dynamic because it allows them to give the conspiracy theory oxygen, present it to the public without really taking a firm stand where they themselves are saying the U.S. did this. Uh, but it provides a way for them to cast a little bit of doubt on the extent to which they bear responsibility for how uh, the pandemic played out both in their own country and globally. This is Steve Morrison here, Renee. Thanks so much for joining us. I mean, we're seeing a bit of an echo chamber here between China and the United States in terms of trading these conspiracy theories, because the U.S. has done in, with similar tactics, put forward a conspiracy theory about what the Chinese have been doing. Yeah, in the U.S., it took the form of a few senators kind of just asking questions. It seems that there's a biological weapons facility or biological research facility in Wuhan. Of course, you know, it escaped from there. It was genetically engineered, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's varying degrees of, you know, how far various lawmakers or, or political pundits are willing to go. Uh, and, and that's, again, the ability to say, like, we're just asking. It's very hard to negate just asking, right? Like, we're a culture with a spirit of inquiry, so why would you not ask a question? You know, it, it's just that it becomes, unfortunately, a little bit more maliciously used at times, where the just asking questions part, in fact, really just sort of leading the conversation or pushing out an idea uh, to a particular part of the political base that will really run with it and will treat it as fact because a person that they trust has implied it. And so this is where, you know, we, we've seen it in Iran, we've seen it in Russia, I mean, we've seen it in the U.S., we've seen it in China. Brazil, I believe, just actually deleted their data sets on infection rates, uh, I think, in the last 24 hours. So there's just a lot of, you know, it's very high stakes for governments in power because if their response is not good, they risk, you know, the anger of the people and being delegitimized and voted out or, you know, depending on which type of government you have. Renee, let's talk for a moment about this astonishing event that happened in early May with the release of this 26-minute video pandemic put together by Mickey Willis and featuring this discredited scientist, Dr. Judy Mikovits. I mean, this was kind of an astonishing event, unsubstantiated secret plot by Bill Gates and Tony Fauci to use the pandemic to grab power and have massive profits. This is what the video claims. Yes. And it moved to scale, 8 million viewers in almost no time, and moved to different bigger audiences, QAnon, the Reopen America. Say a bit about what this kind of digital wildfire means. So Judy Mikovits has been well known to the anti-vaccine audiences for years now. She's been a vaccine truther who believes that contaminants in vaccines are responsible for a whole wide litany of ailments, you know, you name it, caused by vaccines. 
So she's not new. Um, she had a book that was coming out. And so around mid-April, we started seeing increasing mentions of her name. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's quite prominent in the anti-vaccine movement and has a large following on Instagram, began to promote her. And rather than promoting her in the usual way that she's promoted, uh, which is her research, was promoting her as a anti-Fauci whistleblower. So the book and then this pandemic documentary took kind of a two-form narrative approach to criticizing the government response to the pandemic. And what it did was it said, uh, one, the government is lying to you. They're covering up the fact that most of these diseases, COVID-19 included, are man-made and produced by, you know, and result from vaccines. So there was the anti-vaccine narrative, and then there was the cover-up narrative that was woven into it. And then the second piece of it was they framed her as the whistleblower who was revealing this to the world. So you had a really compelling uh, story for people who were interested in intrigue, for people who didn't like Fauci, for people who thought the government was botching their response. And it was very slickly packaged. Uh, and it, rather than just kind of letting her ramble in a, in a YouTube video interview, which is what she'd done for the most part prior to this video, it really edited it quite tightly um, into a 22-minute package and the way the video editor chose to put the video out to the world was with yet another layer of kind of conspiratorial commentary. Um, you have to watch this before the tech platforms take it down. So it was, again, framed as like, a, they don't want you to see this. And unfortunately, there was a very good chance the tech platforms were going to take it down because it included a lot of factually inaccurate information about masks and cures and this sort of thing. Uh, so the platforms had already committed to taking that kind of stuff down. But when it came down, because of this conspiratorial anti-Fauci uh, angle that was also part of it, this was, of course, framed as, you know, the government and the tech platforms are kind of working in cahoots to ensure that people don't ever find out about the, you know, the true malign nature of Anthony Fauci. So the fact that it's spread quite widely, the first wave of spread was related to it being made very appealing to people who already had this, this preconceived belief. So original traction was really very much localized in the anti-vaccine community, the natural health community, some of the kind of MAGA and QAnon groups. But it made its way into the mainstream because of this like exhortation to share it, this, this idea that by sharing it, you were somehow like routing around censorship and you know, making sure that uh, that the people were ensuring that their friends could see what nefarious forces were trying to keep from them. So it was it was very well executed in terms of the psychology and and the you know how it compelled people to become an active part of the process. Renee, you've said that the social media feeds abhor a vacuum. What did you mean by that, and why is it so hard for social media companies, in particular, to combat misinformation? regarding health. Yeah. So I alluded to this a little bit earlier. I think if you search for a keyword and there's no result to be found, it's going to give you something. Dana Boyd has referred to this as data voids in some of her work. And it in her work, it, it pertains specifically to search engines, but it is in fact bigger than just, you know, than, than just search engines. It, it is a phenomenon of how, you know, keywords that are relatively thin, let's say hydroxychloroquine, for example, right? Nobody, except for people with lupus, as it turns out, searched for hydroxychloroquine or people with malaria, I should say, too. But people who had a diagnosis and were given this drug were the ones who were searching for it. 
We did a trace understanding how the term hydroxychloroquine was used and spread over a three-month period. I think it was from um, January to April was when we were looking at that. And originally, if you search hydroxychloroquine back in January, you just get very mundane medical results, you know, descriptions of the drug. When it becomes a topic of conversation where the entire world thinks that it's got the potential to cure a pandemic, all of a sudden, you know, everyone from spammers and grifters who want to make money pushing some herbal hydroxychloroquine and, you know, (laughs) these sorts of like uh, insane pseudoscience cures and things can capitalize on the fact that all of a sudden people are looking for this term. And the way that that plays out, besides on search engines, on social media, is that you do start to see trends begin to develop as people go looking for information. And if they find something that's compelling to them and they hit the share button, that's how you start to see the idea spread from person to person, the conversation topic spread from person to person, and then more people go and search for it. And so it becomes kind of a a feedback loop that's happening there. You see this with crises and we've seen this with the pandemic as well. Have you found that more people are trying to profit from this kind of misinformation or is it that more people are trying to change opinion or more people are trying to disrupt the political process? Are you finding percentages of those things? It's a range of all three. A lot of times you'll see that, like just sticking with hydroxychloroquine as an example, After it left the communities that had used it for a long time, the malaria and lupus and those sorts of folks, you started actually with the anti-vaxxers that were were on it pretty early. Uh, And that's because they believed that it was a, not only a cure, but specifically an alternative to a vaccine. And so the narrative that the government was going to keep you from getting it was sort of uh, immediately part of those communities. Well, of course the government doesn't want you to know hydroxychloroquine works, then you would never take a vaccine. So that was early February, I think, was when we started to see that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, you did have folks who were particularly in non-English speaking parts of Facebook. Facebook cracked down pretty quickly on fake cures and grifters uh, in the U.S. We did continue to see those kinds of posts selling the stuff or selling alternative variants uh, popping up globally. And on the political front, it was when Donald Trump mentioned it uh, in a speech I believe that was maybe March 19th. And when he mentioned it in a speech, it became politicized. Because then you had the Trump supporters, like Sean Hannity was a very prominent figure. Ben Shapiro was in there a bit. There were more of these kind of conservative voices talking about the promise of hydroxychloroquine. Some of them responsibly, some of them less so. And then there were, on the liberal side, people who, again some who engaged with the claim seriously on the merits and discussed, this is what we don't know about the drug. And then others who were just like, you know, Donald Trump is an idiot trying to get you to take this drug that doesn't work. And so there was this, the way any political conversation goes in the U.S. So that's the kind of dynamic at work. You see it hit different communities at different times, and the story is inflected to kind of play into the biases and the predispositions of the audience. And so depending on what communities you follow which of these figures you follow, you see a very different story uh, than people who are in the other media universe, so to speak. You mentioned that Facebook moved against some of the fake cures and grifters. They've more generally changed some of their practices in regard to health, influenced a lot by the measles outbreaks. Are you hopeful that we're going to see more of this kind of change happening, particularly in this period when you know we're in the quick march towards a vaccine, 
therapies, new diagnostics for the pandemic, there's going to be lots of bad actors entering the universe and trying to do what we just saw with Judy Mikovits. Do you see the social media platforms like Facebook taking serious action in anticipation of this? Well, they're aware. There's a lot of real challenges with how to do it right, I would say. So let's let's go back to 2019. You had the Brooklyn measles outbreak in March and then the Samoa measles outbreak in October. So that was a year, particularly when it was in the U.S., where the tech lash had kind of already started, right? And so senators held hearings asking, is anti-vaccine, you know, are we seeing measles outbreaks in Brooklyn because of anti-vaccine information on social media? The answer is yes and no, right? But the platforms chose to begin to what's called downrank, meaning reduce the spread of certain content on the platform. So it used to be back in 2015, 2016 timeframe, uh, the recommendation engine, which is the kind of little suggestion boxes that you get when you're using Facebook, where it's like, hey, you might like this. And it pushes you a post from a, you know, a group that one of your friends is in, but you probably aren't, right? Or it just promotes the group, meaning it shows it to you as a thing you might want to join. And as Facebook was prioritizing the growth of groups on the platform, you know, running huge ad campaigns, trying to get people to, to use this feature, you did see this kind of irresponsible recommendation engine that was pushing these groups to people because they were highly active, right? Lots of people in them and commenting. Uh, and the posts themselves got a lot of engagement because the group members are very passionate. So if the algorithm can't figure out what the topic is, it just sees this as like, here's this fantastic, active, engaged group that keeps people on site for a long time. Let me push that out to other users and get them to join too. So you had this sort of inadvertent algorithmic amplification problem. So Facebook's first attempt to deal with this was actually to downrank those groups, to, to effectively remove them from recommendations. So what you started to see was, in addition to downranking these groups, they also began to try to amplify better content for certain topics, more authoritative content. And that worked for measles because the CDC and the World Health Organization have decades of research on measles. We understand the treatment. We understand what happens when you get measles. We understand and have a vaccine that works. And so there was really clear authoritative content to point to. With COVID-19, first of all, you know, it wasn't immediately clear that the COVID-19 groups were bad per se and needed to be downranked because they're just people looking for information about a pandemic, right? So you don't want to prevent people from finding information. So the challenge became, how do you tell if these groups are helpful or harmful? Then there was the, what do you amplify that's authoritative? And that became, as we all saw, a, a bit of a debacle, honestly, where the World Health Organization and the CDC faced with a disease they didn't have very much information on, instead of communicating plainly and transparently and regularly about what they knew and did not know, they said very little. And again, that void was filled by all the other people <laughs> who credentialed or not had plenty of things to say about it. So if you wanted information and you were searching on Facebook and getting sent to the CDC and the World Health Organization, a lot of people just had a sense that they weren't seeing anything that was actually up to date or accurate, which really eroded confidence in health institutions and authorities. So the mask situation was probably the biggest red flag for people. They began to think, you know, hey, it seems like from these graphs I'm seeing on Twitter and Facebook that masks are doing something in other parts of the world, and yet our health authorities are telling us not to wear masks. How do I reconcile these things? And then as they begin to dig in and search for information on masks, 
they're going to find whatever anybody who has written about masks has put out there into the world. So there's a real challenge with curating authoritative information in breaking new situations and crises where we just don't know. And I think that's very hard for people to reconcile in an era when, you know, you're so used to having all the information in the world at your fingertips and to getting breaking news relatively quickly. This is breaking news, but it's happening at the speed of scientific research, which means that in a normal world, drug development, vaccine development would take years. And instead, we're expecting reputable information about how a brand new disease works and how we might cure it every time we hit refresh on our phone. Well, we're in a period right now where with the coronavirus where huge unknowns persist, right? Six months into this and huge unknowns persist. And it is a fog of war situation where CDC and WHO are are evolving their guidance day by day or week by week. And then you make an adjustment in your guidance, you're then accused of spreading or contradicting yourself. But the reality is oftentimes you're learning something that does contradict what you thought a week ago or a few days ago. And things change quickly. Yeah. That's just the reality. I mean, the you were fairly critical of CDC and WHO as sort of behemoths that were very slow to adapt. And you had some ideas around what alternative institutions could be trusted. Say a bit more about that, please. I think that, you know, there are certain organizations that are adept at communication, and that's because they prioritize communication. And that is not necessarily what the CDC has traditionally done. The World Health Organization, unfortunately, a lot of the very early coverage was remarkably, I would maybe even go so far as to say kind of uh, fawning over the Chinese response. So much so that quotes from World Health Organization officials were used verbatim as headlines in, in Chinese state propaganda and Chinese state media put them out as like, look how, how much the World Health Organization is praising us. And then as it became increasingly clear to anybody that the information that had come out of China was not necessarily the most accurate or reputable and that the things had, in fact, gone wrong and that you know even the whistleblower doctors in China who were arrested and questioned, none of that played a role in the World Health Organization communications at all. And so people began to feel that this was a very political body. And, you know, of course, the U.S. reaction uh, with President Trump did not help to reduce or clarify or, you know, provide a explainer for what had happened there, but rather, again, just kind of turned into even more of a roiling political feud. Meanwhile, the CDC just wasn't really saying very much. The other problem is when they do produce information, they don't produce it in a form that the public wants to see at this point. Like sending out a, you know, basically a PDF on handwashing guidance is, is just not that is not the kind of stuff that goes viral and spreads. And more and more people of all ages are looking for these quick, shareable, you know, snippets of information digested down for them already. The CDC and World Health Organization are both, in a, in a sense, constrained by the fact that they are required to only say things that they actually know for sure, right? So there's a degree, a, a need for a certain degree of certainty. And rather than framing things that are still unknown or developing, as you said before, as this is our best guess, this is where we think we are right now, instead you do see people feeling confused when the guidance changes or when the information from two weeks ago is no longer current today. I think with more nimble organizations, we've seen this even with vaccination rates and you know, vaccination campaigns around things like measles, 
WHO and CDC content just isn't compelling. People aren't on there sharing it. What people are sharing on even things like MMR vaccines is local pediatricians making TikTok videos, right? Or memes um, and YouTube videos by folks like, you know, Dr. Mike, right? Or, or people who are doing the work of being science communicators on the platforms that they're on, explaining things at, you know, not at a dumbed down level where people feel like they're like it's patronizing, but at a level where people feel like they're getting a good explanation from an authoritative figure who's communicating with them like a human. And that's a very different experience than we're getting from a lot of these institutions. I think that we have to update the way our institutions communicate at this point. There has to be something to make it more compelling for people, make the information feel more trusted, make the source feel more authentic. And we're just not there yet. So Renee, can I ask you, why are they so woefully behind on modern communication? And are they aware of how far behind they are, organizations like CDC? And then finally, have they reached out to social media companies in Silicon Valley for assistance? Well, the platforms actually in 2019, when they were changing that policy so that if you searched for measles vaccine during the measles outbreak, you got their content. The platforms were in touch, you know, about what should we be showing people? What health authorities, what would you like people to be seeing? So it's not that there's no channel of communications. It's that, you know, a lot of times it takes talent to make good content. It's not something that just happens. (laughs) It's actually really difficult, you know. (laughs) Yeah, but politicians and political people don't hesitate to reach out when they're in a, in a campaign and they don't hesitate to hire talented people when they need to communicate something via social media to get reelected. But then we have all these government institutions that are ham handed when it comes to communicating things that involve public health. You know, one of the interesting, um, one of the government kind of anti misinformation campaigns is that of DHS actually was really well done and it did go viral, uh, for the right reasons, <laughs> It was trying to get at how people play on your feelings to make you share or not share information. And it uh, used the example of, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Which is a thing that people feel very passionately about, as innocuous as it is. Yeah, you're either for or against. There's no (laughs) in-between. There's no (laughs) in-between. I am definitely against. (laughs) Me too. I'm with you. And it was a really great little explainer campaign because it was something where, you know, everybody immediately had a very strong opinion. They got it. It resonated and they shared it because it was funny and engaging and entertaining. And and so it was like an example of a a very well executed PSA that understood the cultural zeitgeist and also how people communicate today. Like what compels someone to share your message? They have to feel it on an emotional level. It has to be appealing to them on such a way that they kind of almost put their reputation on the line by clicking the share button. Not in a, not in a you know serious sense of the word, but more in like a, um, I'm a person on the internet who shares interesting things kind of <laughs> right. cultural, you know, in-group dynamic there. But we don't see that very much from the public health folks. And I think, again, it comes down to when you are a scientist and you are speaking in terms where you want to be absolutely precise and ensure that you're not miscommunicating, what you start to see is it is very hard to get out of the jargon and the caveating, and the other side doesn't face that problem. And so with the measles content, the other side is producing videos of moms looking at a camera in their you know, very nice kitchens talking about how their child was, was hurt by the vaccine. 
And that is a very, very hard thing to counter because people see themselves in those videos and they think that could be me. And so the fear that it creates really resonates. And it's not a matter of countering it with, well, you know, a study of 10,000 people showed that X percent did, you know, did just fine. That's using a very different type of, of communication style and kind of touching on a very different experience of information. And that's where I think, yes, it would be great to see them find more authentic voices. Some of this is like, there are people who are trying to do the work, just grassroots, just you know, communicators who are passionate about the issue. You know, I, I think you can make the case that CDC finds itself pretty trapped at the moment, you know, in our own deeply divided tribalist politics and the sort of rise of anti-science, anti-public health sentiment and the like. What we're seeing is the most effective debunkers or counter voices are people who have undisputed expertise but are outside government. I mean, the, the Tom Friedens, the Scott Gottliebs, the Paul Offits, Peter Hotezes. I mean, we have a collection of personalities who are out there who are pugnacious and courageous and very aggressive in the way they go about this. I mean, it, it, I think CDC can certainly do better, but in our current condition politically, I think they're going to be in a defensive crouch. And WHO is going to also be very cautious, given that they're a member states organization and the secretariat has very limited autonomy and has to worry about offending any number of the 201 member states. I think that's true. I mean, I think elevating the voices of smaller authoritative people as opposed to institutions, even some of the smaller institutions like Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has done a great job really prioritizing accessible kind of parent-focused content for various diseases. And you could extend that model as well. Andrew? So, Renee, we're in a long-term process of rushing to develop a vaccine and therapies for COVID-19. And we've seen already sustained attacks against Tony Fauci and Bill Gates, amongst others. Is that just the front edge of attacks? Or are we going to enter a period of expansive personal attacks against a broad number of targets? Are you seeing evidence of this already? Yeah, we're very concerned about that. been flagging this for a while for folks. Uh, unfortunately, when you have an environment, an information environment, the way we do now, where it's so polarized, one of the easiest ways to counter content or a point of view or you know research that you don't like is to attack the individual. And so it's that discredit the person, ergo all of their ideas are bad or anything they've touched is terrible or you know the guilt by association model. So you see that with Gates, you see that with Fauci. It's going to happen, but it's going to happen with lower level figures as well. And that's going to be a real problem. Uh, and, and that's a thing that I sincerely hope that they're preparing for, because unfortunately, if your name comes out as a researcher associated with the vaccine, there will be groups of people on the Internet who will go and, you know, dig through the entirety of your life to try to find something they can use to discredit you with. That is the way that this works. And it is like a mental tax <laughs> if you're not expecting it. And so I do think that it's really important that institutions and social platforms recognize that this is going to happen. It's the unfortunate reality that anybody can become a public figure instantaneously in the age of social media, even if they didn't necessarily opt themselves into it. So this is, this is like a professor or a scientist, you know, doing research at a university and they come up with something that's a contributor to finding a solution to, you know, a problem with COVID or a part of the vaccine or anything that, that someone wants to delegitimize. They're a fair target all of a sudden for these people. 
is what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, that's going to be really problematic. Well, it is. And it's, I mean, it's a thing that happens all the time. <laughs> that's the thing that's so frustrating about it. You know, there's this idea that we, we need to have people on social media counter speaking. And even those people who voluntarily put themselves out there subject themselves to, you know, extreme personal attacks. We've seen even doctors making TikTok videos wind up having their entire life just blasted into some internet group and getting threats at home and one star reviews on their practices and so on and so forth because they hold a particular opinion about vaccination. That kind of thing, particularly if you're researching a vaccine for an international pandemic, uh, is going to, that dynamic is absolutely going to happen. So Renee, the picture that we've discussed here in the course of this long conversation, it's it's full of uh, challenges and dark moments. What gives you hope looking ahead? I think there's a lot more awareness of the the ways in which misinformation can be deeply harmful. And so you are seeing both platforms think about it in the context of better curation, and you're also seeing the entities that have to produce and counter these narratives begin to take it a lot more seriously. So that's a positive development. I think there are a lot of challenges, and it really is something that requires kind of a whole-of-society approach. So my hope is that particularly with the pandemic being so impactful in people's lives that we will see that focus that allows us to develop a better information ecosystem overall. Renee Duresta, thank you so much for your time today, for your valuable insights. Keep on doing the great work you're doing. We'll be following it and we hope to see you again soon virtually. I know Steve's got an event that he's going to be doing with you this summer. Yep. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Renee. Thank you. Have a great day.